Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Central Church of Christ podcast. We're so glad you've joined us today. Just as a heads up, we are holding in-person services every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Also, if you'd like to join us for a to-go meal, we are serving those every Wednesday through our Bread of Life Cafe at 5.30 p.m. If you'd like to get more connected to our church, feel free to email centralchurch1 at gmail.com or call us at 513-481-5820. We look forward to hearing from you. And now, let's get back to the podcast. It's just me. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Um, hey, this morning we're continuing our series on John's Gospel. It's something we're doing this whole year. Um, just so we can get to know Jesus as if we've never met him. Get to know him for the first time. And it's striking because Jesus does things that we don't expect all the time. And today, we're going to talk about how God's judgment is love. Or another way of putting it is that God's verdict is love. So one of the things you'll hear over and over again is I'm going to talk about judgment a lot. Uh, Not because I love judgment, but because John emphasizes this word quite a bit in his gospel. Uh, It's something that he talks about a lot, and he even talks about it in this passage, the passage with probably the most known Bible verse to people all over the world. John 3.16 is part of our passage today. So, in order to do that, uh, to convey what this message is really about, I thought it'd be good. Sorry, I thought it'd be good to begin with a story about this guy. Now, if you can't tell who that is, um, this is a high schooler, uh, circa 2006, and uh, I, know, I know a lot of you are like, "Who is this person?" You're not going to believe it, but that's actually me when I'm 16 years old. And if you can't tell, I'm rocking the, uh, the short sleeve dress shirt, uh, trying to bring that back into fashion, but I couldn't do it very well. Some other people are much better at it than I am, but the tie and the short sleeve dress shirt, that is Daniel in 2006. But I wanted to tell you about that time in my life because I went to private school. And at private school, things were a little bit different than my friends had it in public school. One of those major differences was detention. Uh, You're like, where's he going with this? I thought he was the pastor. But (laughs) detention was vastly different from public school to private school. Here's what I mean. When I would talk to my friends and ask them, what's detention like at your school? I was like, oh, detention? It's terrible. We have to stay after school and do our homework. And I'm like, that's detention? That's study hall after school. That's not detention. No, at my school, what we have, we don't actually have detention. We have jug. And you're like, jug? What is he talking about? Like, that can't be bad, right? Wrong. Jug is terrible. Jug is this horrific thing that you never want to fall under. You don't want to receive jug at my high school. But before I even tell you what that stands for, let me open up the story a little bit more. It was 2006, and the day was roughly like this. It was very rainy. It was very dreary. The kind of day where you might get tired. And I was in European history class, Euro, short for European history. And in this class, 
We had a substitute teacher for like the first time in maybe the 50 year career of my teacher. We had a sub. And, you know, students just love to take advantage of the fact that if there's a sub in the room, things might be a little more lenient, right? And the assignment for the day was just to read the chapter, take notes, done. Easy, right? So I do just that. I read the chapter. I take notes. I look at the clock, and there's only 10 minutes left in class. Now, as a high schooler, 10 minutes... There's a lot you can do with 10 minutes, right? The guy in front of me was really smart. At least I thought he was. Because I saw him being very wise and frugal with his time. He finished his notes, he closed his book, and he started to snooze off. I'm like, that's a good idea. 10 minutes of sleep? Yes, I think so. School starts before the crack of dawn here, so I think I will take a nap too. Well, I close my book, and not one minute in, I'm, I'm already dozing off, because 10 minutes is glorious in high school. But all of a sudden, maybe a minute or two later, I'm, I'm halfway asleep, and I hear a collective gasp. <gasps> and that gasp startled me. I lift my head, and I see the substitute teacher hovering over the guy in front of me. I'm like, what's going on? Everybody's like, attention is focused on the guy in front of me and the substitute teacher. I raise my head a little bit further and the substitute teacher had his weapon of choice. He had a chalkboard eraser in his right hand and a chalkboard eraser in his left hand. And he proceeded to clap them together over this student sitting in front of me and get chalk dust all over him and he's still sleeping. And then things get really interesting. I'm like, okay, now he's just caked in chalk dust. This is awesome. Hopefully I don't get caught too, right? But I'm looking at him and the substitute teacher taps him on the shoulder right in the middle of the chalk dust, right? He taps his shoulder and he says, rise and shine, sleeping beauty. You just got jug. Now this student sitting in front of me was new this year to our school at least. He was a transfer student. And he had the unfortunate audacity to ask the question that none of us wanted him to ask. If we could have saved him from it, we would have, but it was too late. He looks up, hair covered in chalk dust, says, what in the world is Jug? The teacher turns around. He's like, I'm glad you asked. Turns around, goes to the chalkboard, and he writes, justice under God. That is what Jug is at my high school. Justice under God. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, that is so unjust. That's so unfair. Like, he finished his notes. Why can't he take a nap? That's not right. There's nothing justice-oriented about that. In fact, it's wildly unjust. But I wasn't going to argue that out loud. I was just thinking this in my mind. And wouldn't you know it, like... That spurred me on to like be the kind of person that's like thinking about what's fair and what's unfair. And today we come across once again this idea of judgment or justice in, God, in the Gospel of John. So 
Let that wonderful picture of me with hair be burned into your minds um, because it's not coming back. But judgment. Jesus is having a conversation with this Pharisee. And he's not just a Pharisee. He's like the chief executive Pharisee of the Pharisees. His name is Nicodemus. He's part of this council called the Sanhedrin. In other words, he was a Jewish leader of his time. He's supposed to know his scripture. He's supposed to know the law. He's supposed to be an expert. Jesus shows us the basis for judgment that's coming into the world. So if you're a Jewish person in the first century, you're kind of expecting that God's going to make things right. The point of God returning, the point of God sending the Messiah, is to set things right that are wrong. If we could really boil it down to something simple, that's the basis for judgment. There's wrong things in the world. God needs to set it right. So if we pay close attention, love is a key word in this passage, and so is light and darkness. Love, I'm going to argue, is synonymous with light in this passage. Love is another word that we can use for light and vice versa. We can interchange those words. So there's light coming into the world in this passage. I'm going to say let's actually reread some of these verses replacing light with love. Let me give you a couple examples. In John 3, this is what he says, for everyone, sorry, verse 20, for everyone who does evil deeds hates love and does not come to love so that their deeds will not be exposed. Let me give you another example. But the one who practices the truth comes to love so that it may be plainly evident that his or her deeds have been done in God. Let me unpack this a little bit for you. The reason I wanted to replace light with love is this reason. We often think in terms of what belief means. What does it mean to believe in God? What does it mean to be a believer? John has very potent, uh, abrupt words about this. Not just in John's gospel, but in his three letters too. There are people who love evil, and therefore they do not come to love. And there are people who practice the truth who actually come to love. They come to the light. So how does love connect to judgment? It's a good question. How does our interaction with love connect to judgment? Because usually in our context, we think of judgment as this horrible thing. But how, do, how is there even an ounce of love in judgment? We think of it almost exclusively in terms of punishment, judgment, right? Like, if you think of judgment, you think of somebody going to court, you're like, okay, they're going to go get punished. They're going to be dealt some kind of justice that involves them being punished. But I want you to look at it a little bit differently, more like a law court. Here's what I mean. There are people that are not only punished— that does happen, or condemned. But there are people that are also vindicated in law courts. It's not just about dealing out punishment. That's not the reason people go to court. 
They go to court so that justice can be achieved. And anytime we see the word judgment, by the way, I want you to think of it not in terms of punishment, but in terms of a law court where justice will actually be achieved. In other words, some people are going to be vindicated. And in John's gospel, the people who are vindicated are those who believe in Jesus. Some are condemned already by not believing in Jesus. But it's like, wait a second. All I have to do is like check this mental agreement off in my mind and then that means I'm pursuing the truth? That's not what it means. Because people who don't believe aren't just people who say, nah, I don't believe in that. People who don't believe, especially in John's gospel, look like this. They're people who practice evil. Belief is always tied up with your actions. Your actions cannot be divorced from your belief and vice versa. They belong together. So if faith and works belong together, belief and love also belong together. So some are condemned already. They stand condemned in the present moment by not believing. And it's, like I said, it's not just checking off this thing in our mind. Believing is not just a matter of mental assent or mental agreement. Belief is connected deeply to love. So I want to go on and just define this a little bit further. Belief in all of John's writings is proved by love. This even goes into Revelation. So in our present moment, we look at Jesus to see what belief means. Belief is proved by love. So Jesus believed his mission. He believed that the Father sent him into the world to love the world and to reconcile the world back to himself. He believed that mission, not only as the divine person in flesh, but he also believed it as a human being. He believed that his mission and his identity as the son was not compromised. And he followed that belief into the fullness of love. So his belief, in other words, was confirmed by his love for the world. But make, make no mistake, there is no belief without love. Now, I do want to talk about that here in just a moment. But there is no belief without love. So belief and unbelief are the basis for God bringing judgment to the world. Yet, God's judgment remains love. His verdict about the world is not that he's coming to zap the world and blast sinners away, but it's actually that he's going to love people, broken people like me. His final choice is still love. And we're going to see that, especially later in the gospel, it's about the cross. So belief embraces love even from a lowly posture. Unbelief hates love. It rejects love. Do you see where I'm going with this? If you believe in Jesus and who he says he is, then you embrace love. I'm not talking about romantic love. I'm talking about the kind of love that is the costly love that Jesus displayed by going to the cross. Even from a lowly posture, 
Meaning you don't have to have X amount of dollars. You don't have to have X amount of education. You don't have to have these things in order to be a believer. You have to embrace love. Because God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Right? We all know that. Let's think about how this is enacted in Jesus' life. He comes to be dirt poor. He comes to do manual labor. He comes to do things and bend down and wash his disciples' dirty feet. He comes to lift up those who have been pressed down. That is what love looks like. Unbelief looks a little bit more like Herod. It looks like I'm going to secure my power and anybody who tries to confront or take my power, I'm just going to eliminate them. But that's not the love of Christ. Make no mistake, that, is not, that does not make anybody a believer. So, having these two ideas in mind, belief embraces love, unbelief hates love. Therefore, you and I receive God's judgment. We receive it. We, it because Paul even affirms this. We will give account for our lives in the end. The good we have done and the evil we've done. We will give account for that. But here's the thing. We receive God's judgment that he loves the world, including all the people within it. We receive that, and we reflect that love back to the world in the present. So when we receive God's judgment that he loves the world, we reflect that love back to the world. That's our job as Christians. If you want to make it extremely simple, your only job in this age is to reflect the love that God has shown in Jesus back to your neighbors, back to the world. That's your only job. If you do nothing else in life, you've had a wildly successful life if you've done that. But I also want to name this. One of the concerns I could see that's happening. You know, you hear this idea that God's judgment is love. Sounds like universalism. Like, is that what he's advocating? And if you haven't heard uh, some of my messages from uh, last year, I kind of talked about this, but let me just emphasize this once more. This is not about will all people be saved. This is about God's decision and God's verdict that he has made a choice to say that I love the world. Here's the really difficult thing that we have to contend with, though. God loves the world, but there are a lot of people who do not receive love and do not reflect it back. That's the sad and difficult truth that we have to live with. There are people in the world who just genuinely will not receive the love of God. And think of it this way, like John uses this light and darkness motif several times in his gospel. But if you're in a very dark room and somebody decides to come in with a bright flashlight and shines it right in your face, it's painful. Now you can take the time to adjust to the light or you can slam the door shut and stay in the darkness. There are people that choose to slam the door and stay in the darkness. That's what John's saying here. It's a very hard truth to come by. 
That's not the full extent of what I want to say here because I want to kind of wrap up with a story. We often talk about believers. We believe in God. And as I was saying earlier, there are a lot of people in the world who might even take on this identity of being a Christian. What does that really mean? What does it actually mean to be a believer? And one of the things I stumbled upon just in my own interactions with people in different cities, people on social media, one of the things I came across was oftentimes we are more excited for people to say, I believe in Jesus, then we are excited for people that act like Jesus. We, we create celebrities out of people who would say they, they love Jesus, but don't actually love him. I wonder why, too. They say, I believe in God, but then they go and act like pagans. They go and act like unbelievers. And I'm not talking about like, I messed up yesterday, like, we all, I said this last week, we're, we're going to sin. Okay, that's not the point here. I'm talking about the trajectory of our lives. There are people who say, yes, I affirm everything about Christianity. I believe in that. Check. And then they go and live a completely different godless life. That's something that's really hard to come by. I'm going to tell you a story to kind of illustrate this point that just because somebody says, I believe in God, doesn't mean they're a believer. Let me clarify. In the 1960s, there was a man named Dolphus Weary. And he grew up in the rural South. He grew up in the, in the height of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And he was a young man, uh, African-American, who actually had a chance to be recruited by a Bible college in California to come and play basketball for them. He was a really good basketball player, and he was one of two African-American students at this school. It was a really good situation. Year one was great. Year two was awesome. And he's learning these things about God, what it means to be a Christian in the world. And he was even having a, a successful basketball career in California. Now, what happened was, at the end of the 1960s, a bunch of students were listening to the radio, and someone came up to Dolphus and said, did you hear that Dr. King was assassinated? He's like, no, I had no idea. So he ran back to his dorm room, and he turned on his radio, and his fears were confirmed that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Horrible, horrible moment. Keep in mind, he's at a Bible college, and he's one of two black students at this school. What happens as he hears this news that brings him to tears? He hears cheering, laughter, and celebration from down the hall at a Christian school. And how absolutely shocked and appalled he was that fellow brothers and sisters in Christ could be so cruel and so insensitive 
at best. This is the story he hears. Now, do you know what he does with his life in response to this? It's kind of amazing, and it's totally undeserved. But he goes back to rural, the rural south where he grew up. Even though he swore he didn't want to go back and do this, he went back by God's leading, and he started reconciling white people and black people. That's what he does to this day. In the name of Jesus, that's what he does. The same man who was completely appalled by what his brothers and sisters could say about somebody that was trying to do good in the world, somebody that was trying to do good in the name of Jesus in the world, he had every right to be upset and say, I'm not doing that because I was betrayed. But because he believed that God's judgment is love, and God's judgment isn't just getting revenge and eliminating those you disagree with, because he believed God's judgment is love, he was able to go back and form this ministry of reconciliation to do things that mattered for his community. But make no mistake, just because somebody says, yeah, I believe in Jesus. What does that mean, though, if your life mirrors the world? What does that actually mean if you don't love your neighbor? Because John is extremely clear. He's probably one of the clearest, blunt authors of the New Testament. There is no belief without love. Your belief is either affirmed by your actions or it's condemned by your actions. I kind of want to name the opposite of this too. And this is how I want to end. Because you're like, well, I, don't, I think I got my life okay. I think I'm, I'm loving my neighbors well. Because I'm not saying that anybody in this room is doing that. What I'm saying is about that, like don't admire people who just say they believe in Jesus and live an opposite life. In fact, quit admiring people like that. Start admiring the people <laughs> that actually live and believe in Jesus. Admire those people. But let me end with this. You might be sitting here thinking, you know, I, I'm doing my best here. I'm trying to love my neighbor because I believe in Jesus. And I think that my belief is affirmed by my life, by the way I live for my neighbors, for my brothers and sisters. I think my life reflects that. But here's the thing. Nobody knows that I do this. It feels like I don't get any attention for this. And I want to say this, because God's judgment, because his verdict is love, your love does not have to be trending on Twitter for God to take notice. Because God takes notice of those beautiful things you do all the time. God takes notice of that. And God sent Jesus into the world not just to remind people that they need to get their act together, but he also came to affirm the good things that we are doing and to say, keep doing it. The good that you are doing in the world, don't stop. You don't have to be trending on Twitter for that to matter. What matters is that attention is being celebrated in the kingdom of heaven that is coming to earth. 
angels are praising God over our good actions because they are done in the Holy Spirit. And because that's reminding the world that we are going somewhere. We are going to the kingdom. We are bringing the good news that the kingdom has come. Jesus, by coming in the flesh and by saying and affirming that God so loved the world, is reminding this church, all of us, that the good we do actually makes a difference. It doesn't have to be caught by the local news channels. It doesn't have to be celebrated widely. I would rather a few people admire what this church does, even in secret, than for people to admire us for loudly proclaiming that we love Jesus, but we neglect our neighbors. I'd rather them love and admire this church for the things we do, even on a small scale, than for us to be broadcast around the world. God's judgment is love. God's verdict is love. Will you pray with me? Our good Father, we thank you so much for the ways that you have enabled us to be people who go into the world, who celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, our Lord, And by doing that, we affirm our belief. What we think in our minds, what we feel in our hearts, we affirm that every time we love our neighbor. Lord, we know that we mess up. We know that we sin. But God, let it be an act of mercy. If someone catches us in our sin, let it be an act of mercy that it's discovered now and not kept in secret until the last day. Let that be a reminder that you are so merciful to remind us that we belong to you, and if we belong to you and we believe in you, then we get to reflect that same love back to the world. Let us not be afraid to love our neighbors, even when it's costly. Let us instead, with boldness, go into the world knowing that we are loved, just as Jesus has come into the world to love us. Send us, Father, into your world. Let us be that reflection. And let us admire the people, even who aren't famous. Let us admire them for the ways that they remind us of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, uh, next week's scripture is on the screen. It's John 3, 22 to 36. If you haven't kept up with it, I just want to encourage you If you have a journal, if you have a notebook or something, handwrite out the passages. Um, It's just, it's transformative. And I I advocate for this every week, but you're going to get a lot closer to the text if you do this. I don't know why. There's something deep within our psychology and in our minds that allows us to understand something after we write it. I don't know the full details of that. But I consider it one of the beauties of being a creation of God's. So please do that if if that's your kind of thing. And lastly, I just want to send us out with the doxology. Uh, That's that's something we're going to do each and every week.